Welcome to Hidden Headlines, Faith, Family, Freedom. In this episode, it's a slogan the left despises, America is a Christian nation. But what does that really mean, and should the non-Christian be offended? You'll find out. America's colleges and universities. Did you know that some of our nation's most prestigious schools have deep evangelical roots? What happened to those moral underpinnings? And we constantly hear bad news about the lack of authentic faith in God, the God of the Bible, in the United States of America. However, on this edition of Hidden Headlines, I'll share the good news. Thanks for joining me, everybody. Brian Sussman here in this special edition of Hidden Headlines. This edition was spurred by something going on with Senator Ted Cruz from Texas. Senator Cruz is involved in an investigation into the Yale Law School over what he says are the school's discriminatory actions against students with, quote, traditional Christian views. Now, Ted Cruz is chairman of the Senate Judiciary Constitution Subcommittee, and he sent a letter to the school. This letter said that Yale needed to hand over internal communications regarding the school's treatment of its Christian and conservative students. Christians, I would say, are under attack on our nation's colleges, as are conservatives. So this began with Cruz sending a letter to Yale Law School's dean, notifying the dean of his plans to investigate a new law school policy, which Cruz says stemmed from unconstitutional animus and a specific discriminatory intent to both blacklist Christian organizations and to punish Yale students whose values or religious faith led them to work there. It's interesting to me how ignorant some are regarding the history of this country. We really were founded on Christian principles. You could say that we were founded as a Christian country. Now, does that mean that in order to become a citizen of the United States of America, you needed to be a Christian? No. But it meant that our system of government and the underlying morality within our system of government, the laws of the land, were rooted in biblical principles. Biblical principles that are good for everyone when applied. But this is a new day. This is a new age. So let's talk about this. The Christian roots of America's colleges. Specifically, the more recognizable Ivy League schools like Yale, Princeton, and Harvard. Now, again, you might be asking, why is this a big deal? Well, it's because our history means something. You know, you have politicians like Bernie Sanders and AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and liberals at large who don't think our history is important. In fact, there was another very liberal individual named Karl Marx who actually had a famous quote which said, history means nothing. So you get people like Bernie and Alexandria and liberals at large, and they don't want you to know the history of this country. They want you to be ignorant to our history because it is a wonderful history. The roots of this nation are indeed Christian, or perhaps it would be more accurate to say Bible-based, Bible-based. Now, modern claims that America is not a Christian nation They're rarely refuted today because of the widespread lack of knowledge about our history. 
and our foundation. And a foundation is important. Once the foundation is cracked, once the foundation is cracked and chipped away, what do you have? You have a structure that is unstable. And that's why I'm doing this podcast, to equip you to know about the true foundation of this nation. Now, contemporary critics who assert America is not a Christian nation always refrain from offering any definition of what Christian nation means. So let me unpack that a little bit for you. What is the accurate definition? Contrary to what critics imply, a Christian nation is not one in which all citizens are Christians. It's not one in which the laws require everyone to adhere to a Christian theology. It's not one that says all elected officials have to be Christians. No, not at all. In fact, I'll go back to something that a Supreme Court justice said in, uh, well, this is David Brewer. He lived from 1837 to 1910. So we're taking you back to the 1800s when he penned this. In what sense can America be called a Christian nation? Not in the sense that Christianity is the established religion or that the people are in any manner compelled to support it. On the contrary, the Constitution specifically provides that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Neither, he writes, is it Christian in the sense that all of its citizens are either in fact or name Christians. On the contrary, all religions have free scope within our borders. Numbers of our people profess other religions, and many reject all. Nor is it a Christian nation in the sense that a profession of Christianity is a condition of holding office or otherwise engaging in public service. See, we are a Christian nation because, as you'll hear me say probably a few more times during the course of this podcast, we have pillars of morality and virtue that are based on biblical truths. Perhaps to put it more plainly, Christianity is the religion that shaped America and made her what she is today. In fact, historically speaking, it can be irrefutably demonstrated that biblical Christianity in America, I mean, that's when you, you look at the Bible, you believe it, and you live it out, produced many of the cherished traditions that are still enjoyed today, including, now these are some of the examples I promised, including, we are a republic rather than a theocratic form of government. We have 50 states, and each of those states is able to make its own rules and regulations based on what the people desire in those states. We are not beholden to a theocracy. We are a representative republic with elements of democracy. The institutional separation of the church and state That is something that's a wonderful thing that is also very biblical. The protection for religious toleration in this country and rights of conscience. God gave you a brain. He gave you a mind. You can do with it as you please. You can live for him, believe in him, cherish him, or reject him. You are created in his image. That means you know the difference between good and evil, and you can choose accordingly. That's very biblical. There is a distinction in this country between theology and behavior, thus allowing the incorporation into public policy of religious principles that promote good behavior, but do not enforce theological tenets. So, for example, we believe in 
the golden rule. We believe in the Ten Commandments as having some pretty good ideas at the least. Uh, we believe in we believe in so many wonderful principles that come from the Bible, all of which promote positive civil behavior, but don't impose, for lack of a better term, ecclesiastical rights. And we also have a free market approach to religion. That's very biblical as well, thus, insurance, thus ensuring religious diversity and security for the rights of religious conscience. If you believe what you believe, those are your beliefs, and no one should be able to mess with those things. That's all a part of what the God of the Bible wishes for his people. Now, of course, the God of the Bible would, would hope that we would all follow his ways, but at the same time, when we don't, that is our right as well. This is all a part and parcel of the United States experience that has to do with its Christian roots. So consequently, a Christian nation, as demonstrated by the American experience, is a nation founded upon Christian and biblical principles. Principles whose values society institutions have largely been shaped by. So this definition was reaffirmed by American legal scholars and historians and professors and teachers for generations. But today, widely ignored. No one wants to talk about those roots. Those roots have given us the wonderful and beautiful country that we enjoy today. So let's get back to the colleges. I want to begin with Harvard. I know that Ted Cruz is talking about Yale, but let's go back to Harvard because Harvard was the first university, the first college here in the United States of America. It was founded 18 years after the Pilgrims landed in the New World. Harvard College, first of the Ivy League schools. It was established for the sake of educating the clergy. It was a Bible college. And raising up a Christian academic institution to meet the needs of perpetuating the Christian faith. Although when I say a Bible college, maybe that's a bit too far. It was a biblically-based college. Oh, and the students were so well-versed in Latin and Greek and math and reading it's amazing when you look at the one, 106 of the first 108 colleges formed in America, 106 of them were built upon Christian principles. It's amazing. Before the Civil War, which of course ended in 1865, scarcely half a dozen colleges were established without some sort of commitment to biblical and Christian principles. And by the way, most of the colleges and their presidents were, in fact, pastors, clergymen. Deep evangelical convictions of the Christian founders were all present. And I'll get to you some stories a little bit later in this podcast. Hopefully, I'm not going to run out of time. Although, as I think about it, I can take as much time as I want. It's a podcast. <laughs> Harvard University was founded in 1636. Its intention was to establish a school to train Christian ministers. Allow me for just a moment to read from the original rules and precepts of Harvard. Rule number one, precept number one, insisted that its students become fluent in Latin and Greek. You might ask why. Well, because by understanding Latin and Greek, you would be able to better understand the ancient philosophers' 
And those ancient philosophers, by the way, were not necessarily Christian or Jew. And then principle number two talks about let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life. The main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. And therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. And seeing the Lord only as the one who giveth wisdom. Here's an example of how far Harvard has drifted from its Christian underpinnings. Interesting story about its motto. The motto is truth for Christ and the church. That's the original motto. Veritas Christo Ecclesia. It was adopted in 1692, and it was a part of their original seal. Interestingly, in the seal, there are two books on the shield that are face up, and there is a lower book that's face down. This symbolizes the limits of reason and the need for God's revelation. So the two books face up deal with our reason. The book upside down illustrates God's revelation. In other words, we need God's revelation to be wise. Veritas Christo Ecclesia. At some point in Harvard's history, the motto was changed to simply truth, veritas. So you see people running around now with the Harvard crest on the front of their shirt, and it says truth. Well, that sounds wonderful, but it originally was truth for Christ and the church. And the books, oh, we do not have one any longer that's face down, God's revelation. They're all face up. You see, it's the university that has all the answers and all the knowledge you would ever need. It's amazing how the hearts of those at Harvard have been darkened. The hearts have been darkened. The people in these universities, running these universities, they become foolish because they deny the power of the very God who inspired the people to found those universities many, many years ago. They've suppressed the truth. And it's interesting because in the process, they've become incredibly secular. And it's not just Harvard. This way of thinking, as you know, has infiltrated many, many other Christian colleges today, at least colleges that were at one time Christian. Most of the colleges in the United States that started over 300 years ago were Bible-proclaiming schools. I've talked about this, but let's expand. Harvard and Yale were originally started by the Puritans. Princeton was originally Presbyterian, and all three of these schools had rich Christian histories. Harvard named after a Christian minister. Yale started by a clergyman. Princeton was taught by a reverend. First classes were taught by a reverend. Princeton's crest still actually says it's in Latin. Probably no one knows what it really means, but when translated, it means under God, she flourishes. Under God, she flourishes. Talk about the university. Under God, she flourishes. The first cracks in the foundations of these schools really appeared in the late 1700s and early 1800s, beginning, beginning uh, believe it or not. It started with Charles Lyell's three volumes of Principles of Geology. And that had to do with evolution. You know, there was a belief in the acceptance of the flood 
and the biblical chronology of events that gave us this earth. And pretty much through these volumes of the principles of geology, uh, Professor Lyell, well, I guess you could say, finished off the victim and nailed the coffin shut. It became so powerful, his writings did, and it began the secular slippery slope that we've seen today. So they started believing in, as opposed to a young earth, an old earth. And this permeated universities, and by the 1800s, set the stage for Darwin's evolutionary model in 1859, The Origin of Species, and then later his work on human evolution, The Descent of Man. So in order to have The Origin of Species and The Descent of Man, you would need an old earth. You would need that magic wand of time to get rid of a creator and instead have the world in which we live today. It wasn't by an act of God. It was by a magic wand of time. It started with a simple cell, and that simple cell multiplied. And suddenly we had an amoeba, and then we had a worm, and then we had a lizard, and then we had an alligator, and you know how it goes. It's interesting to me when I think of evolution. I, I've often thought, and this is, if you ever want to see an evolutionary scientist lose their mind before your very eyes. Just bring up this term, transitional forms. So we have all these fossils of all these completely formed creatures, right? You've got the lizard and you've got, you've got the snake and you've got the lizard and you've got the alligator and you've got this animal and that animal and the other animal. But if all of these animals morphed into their completed forms over time, why don't we see the transitional forms in the fossils? Shouldn't there be a fossil of, for example, the snake with one leg before it became a lizard? Shouldn't we see that particular creature that was walking around? It was going to be a chicken, but it was the chicken before the beak was formed. I want to see that. I want to see, hmm, I don't know. The dog, or maybe we should say rather than the dog, we should say the, the, the wolf, the wolf, before it had teeth, when it just had a tongue. I want to see that particular fossil, transitional forms. You can't find them. And that's why I've always been a skeptic of their theories. But it's interesting, over time, Christian universities adopted these various compromises, and the slide from biblical Christianity to naturalism soon followed. And once Christians began adopting a naturalistic view, including evolution or earth history over millions of years, it didn't take long for the rest of their faith to come crumbling down. They gave up on the Bible. And they started accepting naturalistic science instead. And that grew to increasing secularism. And then finally, Bible? Who the hell needs the Bible? Their words, not mine. It may come to a surprise to you. When Yale University was formed... Back in 1701, it was formed by ministers who were unhappy, are you ready for this, with the growing liberalism at Harvard. It wasn't called Yale at the beginning, it was called Collegiate College, but it was the beginning of that huge campus we have today with over 100 buildings. The first classes were held in a home of a reverend, and finally, in 1745, it moved from a home to a campus, and they renamed it Yale, in honor of Elihu Yale. Elihu Yale was a very successful businessman and a very devoted Christian man. 
what's interesting about that, I'm looking at the requirements of the students for the original Yale University. They were required to live religious, godly, and blameless lives according to the rules of God's Word, diligently reading the Holy Scriptures, the foundation of light and truth, and constantly attend upon all the duties of religion, both in public and secret. Furthermore, every student was instructed to consider the main end of his study and to know that God in Jesus Christ was indeed Lord and to lead a godly, sober life. That was the purpose of Yale University. You know, for many years, those ideals were followed. And I'm reading what one faculty member wrote around 1800, quote, it would delight your heart to see how the trophies of the cross are multiplied in this institution. Yale College is a little temple. Prayer and praise seem to be the delight of the greater part of the student life. Hmm. And then there's Princeton. Princeton, like that of, well, Harvard, Yale, Brown, Rutgers, Dartmouth, uh, was also a deeply Christian institution. However, Princeton was one of the consequences of something called the Great Awakening. This was a series of religious revivals that swept the English colonies in America in the 18th century. The Great Awakening. And by the way, it had social and political consequences, too. Because this Great Awakening, I mean, this was just a wild revival whereby people were, they would go to these these meetings and they would hear the Word of God and they'd start hooping and hollering and falling down and getting saved on the spot. People who had been alcoholics were instantly delivered from alcoholism because there was alcoholism back then. People that uh, cuss like a sailor suddenly stopped cussing like a sailor, because a lot of people cussed like sailors back in those days. But there were other consequences of this. It brought an upsurge in missionary or evangelical activity to the Native Americans. And many, many Native Americans and Native American tribes converted to Christianity during this period. Also, this was the first important movement, are you ready for this, against slavery, the Great Awakening. As God was revealing himself in these powerful, dramatic fashions to the people of of, uh, New England in particular, and then it swept into the the mid-Atlantic states, and then it made it into the South. But as it was moving about, people became, became convicted of the sin in their life. And it was just far more than the alcoholism or the cussing. It was, I own slaves. This isn't right. This has got to end today. This was the beginning of that movement. God brought this upon America for good reason. It was a great awakening, a great awakening to morality, a great awakening to the power of God. So again, it started at about 720 with revival meetings. It moved into the middle colonies. It moved into the southeastern United States, or the southeastern colonies, as it were. And it went on for many years, probably till about 1758 or so. But what happened is there was something that took place. And you started seeing more and more people understanding that schools like Harvard and Yale just weren't cutting it. <laughs> they, were, they had become too liberal. 
And so with that in mind, it was schools like Princeton that were instituted. We need to get back to our biblical roots. We need to put God back on the throne of our lives. We need to make him our our moral compass. My goodness, we have drifted so far. It's interesting. Let's take it to this year, 2019. Liberals have stuck to a pretty consistent strategy in dealing with American Christianity. If you repeat something often enough, people are going to start to believe it. And they have willing accomplices in the media. And they have done a good job of setting out to convince the country that authentic Christians are dying on the political vine. And that was really, I think they were shocked in 2016, the election of Donald Trump. The church's withering influence, in my opinion, proved to be anything but withering. I mean, look at Donald Trump. Listen, I don't know, to this day, I don't know where he stands regarding a relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord. I've heard various things from people that I really respect, but I I don't know. I don't have proof. Is he rough around the edges? Oh, yeah, he's rough around the edges. Does he... Does does he often carry himself as as a card-carrying evangelical? No, but listen, none of us is perfect. I mean, if you could look at all of our lives in different lights. We're all a little raggedy, right? But but here's my point. In his campaign, he made promises that were very Christ-like, very godly, very biblical. And there were people like me that were watching Donald Trump thinking, I just, I don't know. I mean, he's talking a good game, but I'm looking at his past life and there's, there's no proof that he's, for example, pro-life. That's always been number one on my list. Uh, there's, there's no proof that he's for freedom of religion in America. There, there's no proof that when he, I say, God bless America, and I mean it a certain way, uh, that, that he means it the same way I do. You, you understand what I'm saying? I just, I looked at his life, I didn't know. But my gosh, or may I say, my God, it's been awesome to watch this man carry out his campaign promises especially regarding life and liberty and truth and pro-life and upholding Christian values. It's a beautiful thing. So I'm reading something here that I think will be very encouraging to you. It's actually a study that was conducted at Harvard, of all places, and it has to do with Christianity in America. It's not only alive, but it's growing. And it's a surprising thing because you continue to hear the media talking down Trump, talking down his supporters, making it sound as if there's not a Christian left on this planet who doesn't have three eyes on his face, right? This is amazing stuff. Not only did this examination from Harvard University find no support for this secularization in terms of actual practice and belief, but the researchers proclaim that religion continues to enjoy, quote, persistent and exceptional intensity in America. Again, the next time you hear Christianity is uh, going bye-bye, going the way of the rotary phone, don't buy it. Liberals only argue that to disparage you, to diminish you, to make you feel bad. Don't let them. 
because there are things happening. Maybe not with the mainline denominational churches. Those have gone completely cuckoo, in my opinion. For the most part, I don't mean to offend some of you who go to a, a great mainline denominational church that's, boom, solid into the Word of God and is, uh, is doing their part to do good things around the world. But what I'm saying is there is a lot of great stuff going on with Christianity these days. And there are people who believe and are coming to belief, and their lives are being changed. And that is nothing but a good thing. Now, as we conclude on this edition of Hidden Headlines, I want to share with you something. This is from my book, Eco-Tyranny, which Eco-Tyranny, How the Left's Green Agenda Will Dismantle America. I'm not talking about global warming or anything here. I'm talking about patriots. I do this at the end of the book because this is much more than just an environmental screed. I have stories of the patriots who founded America. And I do this because in the afterword of this book, I'm encouraging people to take action for some of these policies, these green policies that are designed to bring about socialism, designed to extinguish the flames of biblical uh, faith. Let me give you one of these stories that I find to be incredibly encouraging. They're sad stories, but they just taught, they show you the grit and determination of the founders of this nation who were all people who believed to some degree or another that the Bible has within it eternal truths of morality and virtue. Now, again, I can't say all the followers were devout, all the founders were devout followers of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to make that assumption, but I can, I can tell you this. They were all very respect, respectful of biblical virtues, biblical doctrine. One of those was Francis Lewis. Francis Lewis was born in Wales in 1713. He was orphaned at the age of five and raised by relatives. After a college education in London, he became a business apprentice and earnestly saved his money. At the age of 21, he set sail for New York, where he established an importing business. In 1756, during the French and Indian War, Lewis was a special aide to the British forces, supplying them with uniforms and other critical supplies. He was on business at Fort Oswego when a bloody battle broke out against French aggressors. Lewis was taken prisoner and sent to France aboard a ship, cruelly housed in a wooden box. Upon his release at the close of the war, Lewis was rewarded for his service to the crown with 5,000 acres of land in New York. Again, while one might think that such a man would be forever loyal to Great Britain, it was not the case for Lewis. He saw how the edicts from England were strangling freedom in the colonies, and, according to one historian... Lewis held dearly to his, quote, Republican views. Lewis's wife, Elizabeth, was a devout patriot and fervently supported her husband when he was elected a delegate to the General Congress in 1775 and signed the Declaration of Independence in Philadelphia the following year. Now, can I tell you something? The women who were married to these gentlemen who signed the Declaration of Independence knew what they were getting into. They all knew that that signature could mean persecution. It could even mean death. And I seriously doubt if there were any women 
who weren't consulted prior to the signing of the declaration. It was a big deal, and marriages were very tight back then. It, uh, it's, it's not to say that there, w- there wasn't divorce, but I'm just saying if you were married and you were in a situation like this, you would want to consult with your spouse prior to signing this document because there would be a mark upon you. And such was the case with Francis Lewis. Now listen to this. This is from 237 of my book, Eco-Tyranny. Once the declaration was signed, the British placed a price upon the head of Francis Lewis. Before he was able to reach his home on Long Island, ground troops and a warship were sent to seize his wife and destroy his property. Elizabeth watched from a balcony overlooking the ocean. She watched from a balcony as a cannonball crashed into a wall immediately next to her. Immediately, a servant shouted, Run, mistress, run! Mrs. Lewis calmly replied, Another shot is not likely to strike the same spot. And she did not budge. Soldiers soon entered the home from the rear and destroyed all of the books and papers and ruthlessly pillaged the property. Elizabeth Lewis was taken to New York and thrown into prison. She was not allowed a bed or a change of clothing. She was given little to eat. A former family African servant discovered her location and was able to smuggle some small articles of clothing and food to her. This really also speaks to the relationship that these wealthy individuals had with their servants. The history books that I've read all refer to this person not as a slave, but an African servant. I don't know what their condition was in terms of uh, servitude or slavery, but the historical books that I've read refer to this person as a former African servant. I don't know if it was a freed slave. I have none of those details. Just a former African servant who went out of his way to discover Elizabeth Lewis's location and smuggle articles of clothing and food to her. Now, that would tell you that their relationship was pretty darn good. That often often, uh, defies the stereotypes, doesn't it? of what was going on back then. It's always very very dangerous to look at history through a present lens. But this African servant also reported her whereabouts to the authorities and her condition to Congress. As a result, they didn't even know where Elizabeth Lewis was. Can you imagine? Her husband had no idea. The signer of the declaration had no idea where his wife had been taken to, but a former family African servant was able to make the discovery. He also reported her whereabouts and conditions of Congress. Demands were made for her better treatment, but the British were determined to make an example of her because of her prominence and wealth. Finally, General Washington was able to broker a prison exchange and Elizabeth was able to rejoin her husband. However, it was plain to everyone that because of her mistreatment, she was broken in health and slowly sinking into the grave. Francis Lewis soon asked for a leave of absence from Congress to devote whole time to his wife, and she died a few years later. Grief-stricken, Lewis retired from Congress to live with his sons. He died in 1802 at the age of 89. He was buried in an unmarked grave in the yard of Trinity Church. Now, why do I mention this? 
because this is the faith of our founders. This is the determination of the people who gave us this wonderful country. They believed in morality. They believed in virtue. They believed in freedom. They believed in God. And as the AOCs and the Bernie Sanders and these liberals try to strip us of this underpinning, they are bringing us into a condition of servitude, of slavery, of godlessness. Of you who are devout believers, hang in there. Keep going strong. For those of you who are on the perimeter of faith, just sort of looking interestingly in, think about going in a little deeper. Get those toes wet. Get those feet and ankles wet. But in the meantime, let us at least consider those principles, those, those values, morality, virtue that we find in the Bible, because when they're applied, they work every time. Could you imagine if we just had a nation that more believed in that kind of decency? Half the videos on YouTube wouldn't even be there because people wouldn't want to make that crap. <laughs> Half the music that you hear digitally or uh, terrestrially wouldn't exist because no one would want to make the stuff. Hollywood would be a completely different beast as well. That is my story, and I'm sticking to it. God bless you, my friends. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Sussman. BrianSussman.com. You can go to BrianSussman.com and email me. I love to hear from you, and I do try to respond to those emails. On Facebook, Brian Sussman Show. Twitter, Brian underscore Sussman. And you can listen to these podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and, of course, at my website, BrianSussman.com. This is Brian Sussman. Thanks for joining me. Hidden Headlines, a weekly podcast, signing off.